Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to us. Welcome back to the Feather Desert. It's Kirsten and Cheryl here today. And we are going to be doing Family Corviday, Magpies and Nutcrackers. So we've all heard the word corvid or corviday used, and most people know it refers to ravens and crows. But many people don't know that this family also includes jays, magpies, and nutcrackers. This is the second episode of our four-part series where we will talk about the members of family Corvidae that are found here in Arizona and what makes them different from other songbirds. This episode will focus on magpies and nutcrackers. And Cheryl is going to start us off today. Yes. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the black-billed magpie. Our first Corvid is the black-billed magpie. Mag- your tongue twister <laughs> magpie, also known as the American magpie. This bird can be found in ex- in extreme northeast Arizona, upwards towards uh, Midwest and western uh, United States, north through central and western Canada to southern Alaska. It is a large songbird with a stout black bill, hence the reason it's called the black bill magpie. Black feathers on the face, neck, back, and upper chest, and the belly is a bright white with white shoulder patches as well. The wings have iridescent blue uh, secondary flight feathers that are visible when the wings are folded, giving the impression of a blue back. The tail is long, making up at least half of the body total body length. That's quite a bit. It is a long and tail. And it's also iridescent blue. With a wingspan of 24 inches and white on the bottom of their flight feathers, this is quite a beautiful bird in flight. I've seen this bird at Yellowstone National Park. Awesome. So I have pictures of it, and I can reiterate that it is a beautiful bird um, to see in flight. The black-billed magpie is found in open woodlands, savannas, savannas, brush-covered country, and stream sides. They eat a lot of protein in the form of insects and carrion. They, you can see them picking ticks off the back of elk, deer, and livestock. And I did see them seen on elk. I didn't know what they were doing, but I saw them. Picking off ticks. Yeah. Yum, yum. <laughs> they will, it's good for the elk. Yes. They will also forage on the ground for seeds, berries, nuts, eggs, mice, and even garbage. Yes, because they were hanging around the picnic tables. In the areas where they share habitat with wolves, they have been seen following packs and scavenging from the wolves' uh, prey once the pack has had its fill. And like many other birds in the corvid family, they can cache, uh, cache food. They will make holes in the ground or snow with their beaks and deposit bits of food that they've been carrying in a pouch under their tongue. That's fascinating. Yeah. And ca- cache robbing is fairly common so if there are other magpies in the area the individual hiding the food may make several false um, attempts to uh, hide their food to protect their treasure from other magpies the final hiding site is covered with grass and leaves and then the bird cocks its head and stares at the spot possibly committing it to memory 
I wish that worked with us. Yes, wouldn't it be nice? (laughs) (laughs) The food will usually be retrieved within a few days or not at all. That's interesting because that actually, one of squirrels do that too. Mm-hmm. And that behavior is a manipulation of the environment and others. And that is what moves the squirrel up on the intellect yep. uh, scale. So that puts these birds right, right in that up. Same, yeah. yeah They're, um, in that yeah. same um, uh, spot as the squirrel. Yeah. That's just totally. Um, I want to think about that for a little bit. <laughs> um, adult black-billed magpies live together year-round once they've mated, and studies have shown that mated pairs will stay together for long periods of time, up to several years. But many pairs will mate for only a season and switch territories, and the mates and mates the next season. I wonder what causes them to do that. These studies have shown no significant reason. Oh, that answers yep. my question. <laughs> um, pairs that have had... Positive chick growing successes um, were even seen splitting up. So we can't even go by what we normally go by. Yeah, that was one of the things I knew you were going to ask. And so I actually looked up the scientific paper and I looked and they said there really doesn't seem to be anything indicating why they're splitting up. Unless it has to do with the change of territories. Yeah, and that's what it was. There were two, actually, two different studies. One was done in South Carolina, and they showed no significant divorce rates. That's what they called it, divorce rates. Um, But there was a six-year study done in Canada, and they showed 63% divorce rates. So that's kind Mm. of on the par with humans right there. Yeah. (laughs) And so, but they didn't really find any real reasons why. It it certainly had to do with territory. Um, And a lot of times it seemed to be the male that was switching territory. And when he left the territory, the female generally didn't go with him. And he would just find another mate in a different territory. But they weren't finding any actual reasons why. Because even pairs that had good chick rearing success were splitting up. The male was leaving the territory. So I don't really know why. I guess they're going to have to continue to do more studies. Yeah. I wonder if it helps with their diversity, though, the genetic diversity. Yeah, maybe. So um, during breeding season, they nest individually, generally at the tops of trees, and only the nest and the immediate area surrounding the nest is defended. Nests are large, loose structures made of branches, twigs, mud, grass, bark strips, vines, needles, and other similar materials, so mostly plant materials. Yeah. The base consists of twigs and branches, with the bowl inside being lined with the softer items such as vines and grasses, and the nest also typically has a domed roof. Huh, interesting, with several exits. The mated pair will take 40 to 50 days to build their nest and may start building in February, so it's ready for nesting by late March. Old nests can be repaired and used, or new nests might be built on top of old nests, creating a structure that can be, wow, 48 inches high by 40 inches wide. Other birds, such as hawks and owls, will also use old magpie nests. That is very interesting. And the fact that they sit on the back of elk, but they don't include elk fur in the lining yeah, of the Yeah, it didn't say anything about using any kind of animal fur. So that is, they're yeah. um, definitely very organic in their choices of what they choose to build their nests. And it's fascinating that it's so big. Yeah. And then it like takes four them. That's like 48 inches is like four feet. Yeah, it's big. It's very, very big. And it takes them 40 to 50 days to build a nest. Which also kind of implies, why would you break up with a mate after you spent 
that much time investing in essentially making your house making your house. Yes. And yes. Uh, it's and just, your territory is small. Generally, that's, yeah, that it's what it looks like. I don't know. They're very interesting creatures, but I think that all corvids are so interesting. They break the mold of everything that we know about bird behavior. So they're so, so interesting. So Kirsten has our next um, bird. Yes, this is the Clark's Nutcracker. I picked this one for myself because I wanted to say Nutcracker. <laughs> our second corvid of this podcast is the Clark's Nutcracker, also known as Clark's Crow and sometimes as the Woodpecker Crow. This medium-sized songbird is found in almost every western state from extreme West Texas to the western coastline. It is found in Arizona only where we have juniper and ponderosa pines, and they prefer the higher mountain areas, so mainly in our eastern portions of the state. Oh, well, that makes sense. Excuse me, Kirsten, because I saw, I've seen the nut Clark's Nutcracker, but at Bryce Canyon. Yeah, we don't generally have them here in the valley because, well, we don't have these types of trees, and we'll find out in a minute why those trees are so terribly important. Um, and also, it just gets, it's hotter here. They're a bigger bird. You know, I don't want to deal with the hot. I don't blame them. I don't want to deal with the hot. <laughs> exactly. So um, the Nutcracker is, sorry, the Clark's Nutcracker is gray in color over its entire body. The wings are black with white patches on the lower secondary flight feathers. The tail is long, just like all of our corvids, and with black feathers in the middle and then white feathers on each side of the tail. Like other corvids, they do have a stout black beak, but this one is much smaller than Rose and, Cra Ro Rose and Cravens. No. <laughs> it's much smaller than crows and ravens. So it's not the main thing when you look at them and you don't say, my, what a large beak. This guy's beak kind of fits into the size of his body. So the Clark's Nutcracker are omnivores. They eat both plant matter and protein. They will eat several species of insects, um, as well as berries. And my notes here are, there we go. Sorry, my notes got stuck. Um, they'll eat other types of fruits as well as small mammals and carrion. So a typical uh, corvid diet. Eggs and nestlings of other birds are on the menu occasionally, and they have become fond of peanuts and suet that people put out in feeders. The main staple of their diet, though, is pine seeds, and they focus on two cold climate species of white pine. I found this very interesting. These pine seeds um, are super important in their diet. So they are adaptable, though. They do like the white pine, but they will utilize several species of pine depending on the altitude that they're living. So, of course, when I'm reading this, doing my research, I'm like, well, how do they get the seeds out of a pine cone? Yeah. I mean, that's hard. Um, what they do is they grasp the pine cone in one or both of their feet, and then they hammer away at it with their beaks that until they can get the seed out. That explains their beak. It does. It explains their beak. Very much so. Because um, when you guys look up this picture of the Clark's Nutcracker, it almost looks like a chisel. Um, it's kind of got that almost triangular look to it. Um, so once they've extracted the seeds... This one was also cool. They carry them temporarily in a pouch under their tongue, and depending on the size of the seed, they can carry 50 to 150 seeds in their pouch. Wow. That's just crazy. I had no idea. The magpie, we just talked about, had a pouch under their tongue, and now this guy. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't either, actually. I thought only um, doves and pigeons yeah. could and yeah. yeah, so I thought these, when they talk about holding them, I just thought maybe it was like a little farther down in the softer part of the throat and they just kind of... Like chipmunks. You know? Yeah. But a tongue pouch does wonders. So nutcrackers, like all other corvids, will store food for later use. They typically store seeds in the ground, caching one to 15 seeds in each spot, typically three to four. 
They often cash more than they need for survival in one year. Um, to defend against cash stealing from animals like squirrels. Ugh. So we're not the only ones that have problems with stealing squirrels. They are exceptionally good at remembering where they hide their seeds, and they can remember where they cash them for up to nine months. That is some um, incredibly good um, long-term memory. Yes, considering I can't remember where I put my keys. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> the same thing. In a 10-minute span. Right. I'm constantly walking around the house trying to find my cell phone. Yeah. I'm like, this is what I do with my life at home is trying to find my cell phone. Exactly. So the Clark's Nutcracker actually uses a type of long-term spatial memory to pinpoint their seeds. See, we need that. Yes. I, we need to have better long-term spatial memory. Yes. So since they actually overstore, they are constantly replanting their own environment, which is fantastic. The Clark's Nutcracker is the primary seed disperser of the white bark pine that is in decline due to outbreaks of white pine blister rust, the mountain pine beetles, and long-term effects of fire suppression. So without the Clark's Nutcracker, the white bark pine forests will die out. Oh, what an important bird. A very important bird for a very important tree because this tree yeah. supports lots of different things in its environment. And I found it so interesting that that white bark pine adapted to focus so much on the Clark's Nutcracker. I thought that was very interesting, a uh, very important relationship that they have there. Uh, they do, the Clark's Nutcracker does nest in pines and conifers in early spring. Unlike other corvids, both males and females will incubate the eggs. So that's unusual. Yes. Uh, both sexes actually have a brood pouch to keep the eggs warm. Wow. Which is super unusual. Yeah, that is. Uh, nestlings are fed pine seeds from both of their parents' caches, and this allows the adults to breed as early as January and February. Which hmm. I also thought was... During Great. the cold months. Right, during the cold months, which makes sense that both the males and the females are going to do um, the nesting together. They're going to uh, keep those eggs warm. It's it's so interesting. They've adapted all this, and they're, they're kind of out of the time where they're going to be competing with food for other animals, and very, very interesting. And it's a large bird that um, is successful with babies and seeds. Yes, yes, I know. Because it's so strange. Because it's not a time when they're going to find a lot of protein out. Yeah, uh, other than plant protein. Yes. It's just, I don't know, when I was doing this, the research on this Clark's Nutcracker, I just kind of fell in love with him. He's so, so interesting. So one other little interesting thing about our Clark's Nutcracker is its name comes from William Clark of the famous Lewis and Clark Expedition. The first European description of this bird was by William Clark himself in 1805. He actually saw it off the banks of the Salmon River, which is a tributary of the Columbia River, and its scientific name, Nusafraga Columbiana, means Nutcracker of the Columbia. I'm so glad you had to say that. Yes. <laughs> um, I also find it super exciting that their scientific name actually refers to the bird. Yeah. Most scientific names just seem like really far out there, and people just like, it seems like they just make them up. But this one actually means Nutcracker of the Columbia. I thought that was pretty cool. All right. I know Cheryl's got one more little tidbit of magpie information for us. All right. So there is one other magpie found in North America, but they are found only in a small area of California. This magpie is the yellow-billed magpie. They look identical to the black-billed magpie with the exception of the yellow bill. But these were named appropriately. Yes. And a yellow patch near the eye. <clears throat> so the yellow patch can be variable in size, and these birds are found strictly in the Central Valley of California. 
and the adjacent chaparral foothills and mountains. It is believed that the ancestor of the modern-day yellow-billed magpie be became isolated in California soon after they colonized North America approximately four, three to four million years ago. Wow, to have a bird, a record of a bird that long ago. Yeah. Because of the environmental changes of the Ice Age and the rise of the Sierra Nevadas, so that's what isolated them. Yeah. And these corvids are known to have funeral gatherings for their dead. When the individual dies, others will gather around the body and vocalize for 10 to 15 minutes. Ah. I thought that was quite that charming. Is. Well, not only that, it, it shows that they have um, some sort of um, emotional intellect. Yes. And we know that with with animals, but we do know that comes with um, corvids like ravens and crows. Yeah, with the slightly larger brain capacity, it seems that at least the emotions are a little bit more easily deciphered by humans. And I I find it... I find it interesting, once again, I'm using that word a lot, but I find Corvids interesting, that they have funeral gatherings like that. It's it's touching to know that we're not the only ones out there in the animal kingdom that um, need family and that mourn them when they're gone. And I thought that was very interesting. So the big question that we have usually at Wild Birds Unlimited, Mesa, is always how do I attract these birds to my yard? Not necessarily these birds, but birds of any kind. So for those of you who do have these in your area, which is not really gonna be in our valley, but those of you a little bit farther north, you and to the east, attracting them to your yard is actually fairly simple. So all of these corvids can be attracted using suet or no melt dough, some of their absolute favorites. You can also do in-shell peanuts and then out-of-shell peanuts. Like we said, both of us, when we were talking about our different birds, they're all high-protein birds. So anything that has a lot of protein in it is probably going to bring them. Probably your trash as well. <laughs> I would yeah, I well, recommend leaving your trash can open for them, but they would come yeah. to it. Ravens would prefer a trash yes. can over a peanut, I think. I think, yes. Um, so what you can do is um, offer these items, but... Keep in mind that your feeder needs to be a bit hefty. These are not dainty little birds. You're going to need some good hefty type um, uh, feeders to help them feel comfortable sitting on them. So using something like a tray feeder or a platform feeder is great. Um, a wreath feeder, uh, like a peanut feeder that we have here, we have wreath peanut feeders at WBU uh, Mesa, and you can put in-shell peanuts in them. Um, or you can do like a heavy-duty suet feeder with a tail prop. Now, they're not going to use the tail prop like a woodpecker would use it, but it just gives them a little extra oomph in the um, Makes feeder it more itself. Stable. Makes it a little more stable. Probably also gives them a little extra leg prop there as well. And all of these would be great items to use uh, for a comfortable feeder to attract them to your yard. All right, that's pretty much what we had for these guys. But I came across something this morning. I haven't even told Cheryl about this one. This one I'm just going to throw in there. And this is an article I read in the paper in the Apache Junction Gold Canyon Independent. And I wanted to throw this out there as kind of a shout out to some local heroes. All right. And this is an article about how some volunteers in the Gold Canyon area saved the Five Sisters. Now, of course, people are like, Five Sisters, what is that? It was a saguaro cactus that is growing with two things all smooshed real together. And uh, one of the saguaro cactus had three shoots, and then there was another one that grew so close to it that their roots have twined together, and there were two shoots. 
So there's five of them. So they're called the five sisters. Well, this woman who lives in Gold Canyon was looking out and she was watching them clear this area for new construction because as all we, we all know, yeah. we, progress is progress. But she was just so sad about all of the property that was going to be plowed under and it held all this beautiful native uh, wildlife, uh, not sorry, not wildlife, but plants, including this five sister Sawyer cactus. So she contacted some uh, people and she ended up talking to the friends of the Lost Dutchman, um, the park out there, uh -huh. our state yeah. park, Lost Dutchman. And they said, well, what can we do to help? So they went out and they took pictures and they got some endangered species plant biologists involved. And they said, is there anything here that is protected? And they said, well, reluctantly not. Um, uh, it's good that there's not, I mean, because they're going to plow it under. But also it's kind of sad because if there was an endangered plant, they would have been able to halt construction. But what they said was, what we can do is try to move some of this out. So they did look at all the different things there. And like the brittle bush was something that they decided not to move because that reseeds itself very easily. The Palo Verdes reluctantly were so big that they couldn't pull those up. But this Five Sisters Saguaro Cactus, they said, we must save this. So they contacted Arizona Game and Fish first because they wanted to make sure that they weren't breaking any laws. And Arizona Game and Fish said, absolutely, that's fine. You are allowed to move it. If it is under four feet, you're not required to get permitting and to get specialized um, permitted people to move it. So as long as you have permission from the person who owns the property where it is and then the permission of the person where the property is growing, going, cool. So they ended up putting it out at Lost Dutchman, which oh, I thought was so that exciting. Is awesome. So they brought in a company to move it. So was it over four feet then? It was under four feet. Oh, okay. So but they, just to be on the safe side. Yes. So they brought in a company that already knew what they were doing because they're like, well, this is almost like 600 pounds already yeah. and it's under four feet. Well, you have to be specific too because I'm sure in the article it covers you, you have to place it exactly... Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in orientation to the rising sun, yep. it needs to be just the way it was. And so they actually had a few people before them say, no, we can't do it. So they finally contacted, they just kept calling people and said, one of these people has to give us the answer that we want, which is, yes, we're going to do it. And they found this great company that was willing to come out and do it. And they were so professional. They cut far around it. So they get all the roots out and they transplanted it, wrapped it up in some carpet and they took it out there and they found the perfect spot for it. So I just wanted to give a shout out to um, the, there are Gold Canyon volunteers out there and the Garden Club members that are out there in Gold Canyon and Lost Dutchman. Thank you so much for helping us save the five sisters. Yeah, that's, that's cool. See, yes. all it takes is one person to mobilize an army. That's it. And that was part of the <laughs> in story. In a positive way. In a positive way, <laughs> we'll yes. stick that out there. And that was the moral of the story. It just took one person to say, hey, let's try to do something. And they mobilized all these people. And uh, so when you go out to Lost Dutchman, uh, you can ask um, probably at that front area there where you first go in. Because they said when they brought the five sisters in that actually the, um, oh gosh, the people that work there are called... Rangers. Rangers, thank you. Um, <laughs> they cheered. They like cheered. They're like, yay, the five sisters are here. So they'll probably be able to tell you where they planted them, and hopefully we'll be able to get a good look at the five sisters in the That's coming cool. years. cool. And imagine how it's going to just blossom. And yes, oh my gosh. It's going to take a while for it to get really big, but it's super exciting that we yeah. were able to save her. Yeah. That's cool. Yes. Good story, Kirsten. Well, thank you very much. I thought it would be nice to make a little shout-out to some local heroes.